if you brought your Bible, um, go ahead and pull it out. We're going to kick off our time of teaching now and open it up to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We have some underneath the chairs in front of you. Um, and uh, open up to Luke when you get there. If you don't have a Bible at all, you can actually take one of those home with you. Everybody should have a Bible, a copy of the scriptures. And so you can take one of those home with you. Luke, uh, Luke is uh, the third gospel account, which means we have four accounts in the New Testament that kick off the New Testament. Uh, that are all about the, the life, the death, uh, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they, they, they recount that story of the life of Jesus. Uh, so Matthew, Mark, Luke is the third one that we're going to be in. And when you get there, find the big number 24 in there. That's chapter 24. So Luke chapter 24 is where we're going to be working from today. If you want to use your phone to find Luke 24, that's fine as well. Uh, just type that into Google, and anything that Google presents you with will be very fine for our purposes today. And if you're looking at your phone at church, we just assume you're reading the Bible. That's just how we roll here at Sedaris, all right? Um, if you're joining us for the first time, if you're newer here, welcome. Uh, presently, we're in a sermon series um, that we're calling the five C's. And today we're in the third C of the five C's, and, and it's uh, consideration. The third C stands for consideration. Um, typically here at Sedaris, we walk through a book of the Bible. We walk through a book of the Bible each and every, uh, well, well, like, so at the beginning of the year, we took uh, seven months, six or seven months to just walk through Exodus. But periodically, what we'll do is we'll do what's more of a topical sermon series, which means we just examine a topic and all that the scriptures have to say in light of that topic and, and in the hopes that we can really unite ourselves to, to what God is doing uh, here in our church, in our city, in our time. Um, and so we're in one of those series right now with the five C's. And in short, the five C's, they really represent a process um, that God uses to grow his followers, to mature his followers that we observe in the Bible from cover to cover. It's actually all through the Bible. In fact, when you know the five C's and you begin to read the Bible, you just start to pick these things out. Or, or you just start to see like, oh man, the whole process just happened on this page of the Bible. It's actually all throughout the scriptures here. And, and he still does this process today to grow us and to mature us. And, and that process, if you're new with us, uh, I'll just work through it really quick. It starts with connection. God connects with us, and so we in turn connect with one another, and we connect with the world, and then it moves to con uh, conversation. God starts conversations with us, and then we start conversations with each other and have them with the world, and then it moves hopefully into consideration. It's a process. Each one of these kind of sets up the next consideration, which we're going to unpack today, which moves uh, and, and forces and, and, and invites people, is probably, probably a better word, into conviction, uh, which is really multifaceted, and Dave's going to unpack that next week. And then conviction, in turn, gives way to confession, uh, which is a little bit more dynamic than telling people your deepest, darkest secrets. Uh, <laughs> that's what we think when we hear the word confession. It's so multifaceted, and we're going to unpack that as well. And that confession, actually, uh, because it's not just telling people your deepest, deepest, darkest secrets, it sets you back up for connection again. And so you run the cycle over and over and over. And this is what disciples do, uh, uh, the followers of Jesus do throughout their lives. Um, and so if you're coming into this fresh, I'd, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to our previous three uh, talks on this. We had an overview week, and then we did uh, connection and conversation the last two weeks. Um, because we just don't have enough time to start from ground zero each time. Um, and, and you can do that on our podcast or our YouTube channel, of course. Um, but as I mentioned, the gist of, of the five C's is to capture the essential activities that we lean into 
in order to partner with God in how he wants to mature us, how he wants to grow us, how he wants to reveal himself to the world for his glory. That, that, that is to say he wants to reveal himself and make himself known and, and seen as worthy and valuable and as, as a, a treasure to the world. That, that's like revealing God's glory is, is helping him be seen for who he really is, the intense worth and, and, and treasure that he really is. Um, but then it also works out for our good as well. Two, um, and, so in, and so in this series, uh, this, in a sense, is a how-to of following Jesus. Um, because that's what Jesus wanted to do with his followers. He wanted them to grow. He wanted them to grow. He, he, didn't, want, uh, he didn't show up into this world to, to save people by way of the cross and then let them drift aimlessly through life. He's actually came, showed up, justified them, which is the theological word for he put his blood in place of ours so that we could be united to God once again, yes, but then he wanted to take them through a long journey of becoming more and more like him. And he's, he said this to his disciples at the Last Supper. He said, I must go, and when I do go, I will send to you the Comforter. He's speaking of the Holy Spirit. And this Comforter will lead you into all truth, meaning you guys, you're, you're, you're not where you need to be. <laughs> Jesus looks at his disciples after three years of ministry and is like, you guys still need a lot of truth. And it's like that with us today as well. You guys still need to, to grow and mature. I still need to grow and mature. And, and Jesus told them at, at, at the Last Supper, the Holy Spirit's going to come and help you do that throughout the course of your lives. And, and so, um, and, and this way is characterized by the five C's is what we've come up with here. And if you're a skeptic like me, you say, really? Five C's. Five, five, five C's, that, that seems a little bit force. Why all, all this hype about this, this kind of um, alliteration that you guys have cooked up here? Surely if they all start with C, I mean, that, that means it probably isn't the, 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 the hard and fast rule, right? There, there's there's got to be something else here. Plus, if you think about it, you know, God's people have always grown by reading his word and reading their Bibles, the scriptures, engaging those, and, and praying, right? Like, why do we need this five C's. Um, and I would say you're absolutely right. There's a piece of this that we've definitely wordsmithed so that we can all remember this process together. Um, but I would ask, what happens when engaging God's word and praying doesn't work anymore? What happens when you're leaning into those things and you're actually not seeing results? Or, or even moreover, what happens when you lose the desire to do those two things. Has that ever happened to anybody here? I'll be the first to raise my hand. You see, this is part and parcel of what the Christian life can be like. We can go to the word, not get anything out of it. We can talk to God, feel like he's not listening to us. We can lose the desire to do those two things all together. That's often the reality of the Christian life. And, and so uh, these five C's are really meant to highlight something that we've lost for those of us who would say, you know, we have our, I have my Bible and I have prayer. That's all I need. We've actually lost something because that notion is incredibly Western. It's incredibly individualist. It's very individualistic. The five C's actually bring back into the church what the Western church has lost, namely that our faith is inherently communal. That our faith is inherently dependent upon one another for growth as well. If you go through these five C's, connection, conversation, consideration, conviction, confession, 
they're actually, for the most part, very, very communal activities, aren't they? They're very, very communal activities, and they remind us that we're inherently dependent upon one another for growth here in this life, and that's exactly how Jesus had always intended it to be. We're dependent upon the Holy Spirit. He says, I want to send the Holy Spirit to you to lead you into all truth, and then you're going to be unpacking that with one another and encouraging one another on in that role. When the Holy Spirit comes, what else does he do? He brings the gifts is what, the, is what we learn in the New Testament, that God gives everyone who follows him individual gifts. And those gifts aren't for the enjoyment of ourselves. In fact, if you go through these lists of, of gifts, Romans 12, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, the gifts are communal by nature. They can only be enjoyed between people, not by yourself. And so th- this series is, is a really fun way to just even roll up our sleeves on the church and ask, how do we be the church together? So, so the five C's, in a certain sense, is about our own individual growth and, and maturation and what the theologians will call sanctification, our, our growth over the course of this life. But then it's, they're also really instructive on, on how do we lean into one another to, to grow together and actually function as the body of Christ. And that's what the, 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 the theologians will call ecclesiology. But then what's more is that these five C's also provide a rough formula for how to invite others into it as well. And what the theologians will call missiology. And so we have these three huge things that overlap with the five C's. And we're trying to talk about all of it in six weeks. I don't know if we'll do it in six weeks. It may have to stretch, guys. But we're trying to do all of that in in this series. And so this series is kind of fun in the sense that if you're new with us or if you're newer to Sedaris, we're really popping the hood on what Sedaris is. How we envision growth happens in life, how we envision community life happens, how we envision our disposition towards the world is supposed to be oriented. And so this is a really fun series. Dave and I have been sitting on this series for like a year now in COVID. We're just like burning. We're like, oh, we, it just doesn't feel right to do it over live stream. We have to have people in person. Our cohorts have to be meeting so that they can be experiencing this in person as well. This has just been burning a hole in our hearts. And so we're really excited to share it with you are share, share it with you all. Now, that, that's enough by way of introduction for just the five C's. Let's start to talk about consideration a little bit here. Because when you come to the five C's, there, there's, there's something really interesting that happens. You'll soon realize when you start to engage the five C's that they're actually with ten, at tension with one another. Like these topics pull at one another. They actually uh, challenge and, and rub off on one another in, in ways that are like, oh, wait, that's also part of this process? Why is that also part of this process? And that, that tension goes like this. Um, and, and the tension is one that each one of us is actually going to feel and experience uh, based on our general disposition. So it's probably not something you picked, uh, but you have a, a general disposition to lean into part of the five C's more than other parts. And, and other people in the body uh, who you might even be sitting next to have, have general dispositions to lean into the other parts. And so what, what are those? Um, some of us are more predisposed to value connection and conversation. We love connecting and conversing. We're open to all types of people. We can go out and have conversations with anybody. We can come in here and have conversations with Like connecting and, and talking come really naturally to us. Like you saw Kate up here. I mean, she's just so natural up here to have a conversation with you guys about Alpha, right? Just, she's probably a connector and a converser. I mean, she's so great. Well, like, Kate's great at everything. So if 
Be friends with Kate. You can learn how to do this whole process. She'll teach it all to you, okay? Um, no, but, but the, the temptation becomes, for those of us who are good at this, is to stop there. That, that subtly, the goal of, of, of connecting with someone, to converse with them, is actually just to connect with them more. It's actually just to connect with them more. And so what happens to individuals or even entire churches um, is we can tend to stay away from topics that others need to consider because that challenge might risk the connection that we're having with that person. But Jesus' goal was never just to connect with people. It's clear from the gospel accounts that, that he had an intense desire to connect with people, to have conversations with people, to lead them into truth, to tell them what God was up to in this world. But when we make connection the goal with one another or those in our city, we actually cheat them out, out of the opportunities to engage his gospel. We, we just get our, our wheels stuck spinning and, and connection, conversing, connection, conversing, connection, conversing over and over and over. Now, now this disposition uh, that's kind of emphasizing these two, is, it's as old as the gospel itself. In Jesus' day, there was people that did this. Um, there was a group of Hellenistic Jews in Jesus' day. They were called the Herodians. The Herodians, um, they were really good about connecting and conversing with the Greco-Roman culture. They were really good at having conversations with the, the Greco-Roman officials. And that's all they did. And, and so they, they leaned into it. They actually got into positions of power themselves. They, they, they were really all about cozying up to Rome in order that Rome might cozy up to Israel and make life go easier for the Israelites. These were the Herodians. Now let's go to the other side. The, the, the rest of us um, might be more predisposed to value conviction and confession. Conviction and confession. Um, we, there's lots of people, this is, this is probably the camp that I, I would put myself into, that, that we love coming to church, not necessarily to connect with people or talk with them, although you guys are great, I love you all, but, but we, we might really want to experience a challenge. We, 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 might, we might want to be challenged to live life differently and talk about how that impacted us and what we are going to do. And what happens when we only major in conviction and confession is we tend to only challenge people who think differently than us. And what happens then? We become increasingly and increasingly isolated from the rest of the world. All of a sudden, we're just off on our own island typing crazy things into Twitter and Facebook, right? Okay? So, so th this is the other side of the coin here and what's happened we started the process at conviction and skipped connection, conversation, and consideration. And the ugly side of this is that when we skip consideration and go straight to conviction, what happens is conviction often is not actually rooted in the Holy Spirit convicting us. Dave's going to talk about that more next week. It's not just rooted in the Holy Spirit convicting us. It's usually rooted in something else, usually shame, usually shame. And, and this is often what produces kind of the dark underbelly of, of some churches that, that can be really spiritually abusive environments. They're really shaming people into conviction instead of bringing them through the process. And there's a group in Jesus' day that did this. They're the Pharisees. They exemplified this to a T. They were incredibly convicted that God's word was true, and with an air of self-righteousness and arrogance, their strategy was to shame people into following it. That's what they did. If you read through the gospel messages or the gospel accounts, that's what the Pharisees do. 
Now, now you can see how these two groups, by nature, they're opposed to one another, right? They're, they're, they're very opposed to one another. They see the other as the enemy, and, and this is true in Jesus' day, too. The Pharisees thought that the Hellenistic Jews, those, those Herodians, were the downfall of Israel, that God's favor couldn't come to Israel so long as the, Herito, the, the, the Herodians continued to shave off the hard parts of what he was like. And likewise, the, the, the Herodians, they thought that the Pharisees were just a bunch of hardliners that was make, making Rome hate them all the more. And so they hated each other. They were at odds with each other all the time. All the time. But do you know who, who these groups hated more than each other? Jesus. Jesus. Mark 3, Mark 12, Matthew 22, we see them conspiring together to kill Jesus. Hated Jesus. Why? Because Jesus stressed consideration, this, this linchpin between connecting and conversing and conviction, conviction and confession is consideration. And this is really where Jesus lived a lot of his life. This is where his conversations led to. This is what he called people who were convicted and just trying to shame others back to, and they couldn't stand it. Why were they so opposed to consideration? Because consideration is the part of the process where we begin to examine our very souls. This is where our souls come into play. If, if, you're, if you're here over the past two weeks, you heard Pastor Dave, on, he really talked about how we, we connect and converse with God, one another and the world. So we do all of the five C's, we, can, we, we really do it with God, with one another, with the world. That's, that's the, big, the big brush strokes of, of maturation, uh, uh, mission, and, and church, okay? We, we, do it with, we do it everywhere. And those tasks actually take a good deal of work, is what Dave taught us. But when we faithfully engage them with our bodies and our minds, we have the opportunity to tap into our souls. To tap into our souls. Because if, if we're to grow and mature ourselves, we're, and if we're going to help others do the same things, we have to get down to the core of who we are in our souls. In our souls. This is what Jesus' ministry is all about. Accessing the souls of the person who's standing in front of him. Which is good. Because this is one of ours and our culture's innate desires. This is what everybody's trying to do. You, you, you can see it. Large parts of our culture that are not Christian, they're trying to accomplish this. They're trying to access their soul for life change. You see it everywhere. Whether it be through astrological signs, it's probably the most superficial one that you see. But there's also big, big, big currents of, of spiritualities, meditations, a host of other things that, that our culture is engaging in order to access their souls. You see, our, our humans generally have this innate recognition that there's a piece of us that's deeper down inside of us that takes work in order to access. And if we do access it, there's an opportunity for life change. That's, that, that's what most humans would agree to that. And, and, and that's what consideration is all about. And we, we know that those other ways of seeking the, the soul, they, they can eventually fall short or perhaps they're counterfeits from the, the, the get-go. And so as followers of Jesus, what we do is we present an alternative for how to access our souls to grow as human beings, to grow as sons and daughters of the Most High. And, and so we present that alternative in the form of a question often. Maybe you've heard it asked, have you considered Jesus? 
Maybe that way that you're trying to access your soul isn't working so well. Maybe you're feeling, at the end of the day, I've been giving so much to this, but I'm not getting anywhere. Have you considered Jesus? Because considering has to do with our souls. Um, If you've attended Sedaris for a while, or if you've come to a newcomer class, you'll know that consider is a big word for us here at Sedaris. It's a very big word for us. It's a very personal word uh, for Pastor Dave, who, who started the church six and a half years ago. You'll know that this word, it encapsulates a message that he felt that, that, that God gave him to bring to his sister's funeral by way of the, uh, eulogy. You'll know that it was a word that he then took and, and brought to, to concert venues here in the Seattle area called the Consider Concerts, where we would ask people to consider Jesus. And you'll know that, that we brought this straight into our church, and we're, most weeks you'll hear us say something along the lines of, have you considered Jesus? We've been doing that for six and a half years now, and, and this word really gets to the core of all that we're at, or all that we're about here at Sedaris. Um, it comes from two Latin words, um, com, which means with, and sedaris, the name of our church, which means heavenly body, which in Latin is specifically referring to the bodies in the heavens, that is, the stars. Uh, if so, if you're an astrophysicist like me, you can get excited. It's really fun, you know? Uh, I, I am not an astrophysicist. I apologize. I just went to school for it. I am a pastor. I'm a pastor now, okay? But I, my undergrad is in astrophysics. But uh, so, so heavenly body refers to the stars. Uh, but here at Sedaris, we, we, take, we take that word, Sedaris, to refer to our heavenly body, which works on a couple level, uh, a couple levels. One, the body of Christ, meaning his followers are collectively the body of Christ, the heavenly body of Christ here on earth, but, but then also our individual heavenly bodies. Sedaris so is, is your heavenly body, that is the piece of you that will continue on after this life, that is your soul. Sedaris so is all about referring to your soul, your soul. It's that heavenly body which God breathed into Adam upon creating him and that he gives to each of us as he knit us together in the womb that will continue on forever. It represents that part of us which is completely immaterial, that that you actually can't put your finger on and touch like we can our bodies or maybe even point to a center of reasoning like our mind. It's something else. It's a different part of what humans is and it's a part of what, what humans are that every culture in all time is trying to nail down and point at and talk about and identify and explain the behaviors that arise out of this thing that we can't see, that we can't quite touch. Consideration has to do with interacting with that part of ourselves. But how do we employ the faculties of our soul? It was very abstract, is it not? Maybe you didn't know you'd be walking into a philosophy course this morning. It's very abstract, is it not? It's, it's, It's going to get really practical here in a second. But, but, but the first thing we must do is accept that these souls of ours are, in fact, eternal. Because if we don't understand the nature of our soul, it's impossible for us to use it correctly. It, we, we just can't use it, right, if we think it's only going to be here for a couple decades. Now, there's this strange book uh, nestled um, among the, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament scriptures called Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. We're not sure who wrote this thing. The person who wrote it called himself Kohelet, which in Hebrew is preacher or teacher. Uh, most scholars think that it was uh, King Solomon who also wrote the Proverbs and the Song of Solomon, um, and, and which are other books in the wisdom literature. The Bible says the wisest man ever walked the earth. Um, and then Jesus showed up, so uh, second wisest. We'll call him second wisest. Um, but 
Ecclesiastes is, is an existential wrestling with God and life itself. It's a crazy book to give a read to. In fact, if, if you want to go anywhere in the Bible uh, to look for the affirmation that it's okay to ask big questions and, and surface huge doubts, you should go there. Because in this book, Kohelet, he contemplates several jarring subjects and he comes to several jarring solutions and, and conclusions, I guess is what I'll say, conclusions that you're like, should this be in the Bible? <laughs> it's, it's really intense and, and really great. And, and so Ecclesiastes is all about really affirming uh, that you can engage your doubts and it's gonna be just fine. There's a way to engage doubts is what Kohelet tells us. Um, but he talks about this notion of the soul and it's in Ecclesiastes 3. We'll throw it up on the screen for you. It goes like this. This is a passage. Um, protest rock song was actually built out of it. So uh, if, you, if you can pick it up, great. Um, There's an occasion for everything, he says, and a time for every activity under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to avoid embracing, a time to search and a time to count as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear down and a time to sow. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his struggles? After all these times that we engage in, what does the worker gain from these struggles? I've seen that the task that God has given the children of Adam to keep them occupied. He's made everything appropriate in its time He has also put eternity in their hearts, but no one can discover the work God has done from beginning to end. So there's a time for everything, and human beings will go through all of it. All things have their specific time, but there's also a piece of humans being that's in our hearts, an eternal piece that's going to exist through each one of those times and keep going, and keep going. This is like a passage that he's really using to say, we don't need to stress out. There's an eternal nature, an eternal nature to our being. It's incredibly, he's trying to actually bring some calm and resolve into his wrestling, which has been incredibly existentially chaotic up to this point. It's a time for everything, but humans will exist forever, he says. So just let that sit in for a second. You will exist forever. We're constantly surrounded and bombarded with messaging to the opposite with messaging that says you get seven, if you're lucky, eight decades here on earth to wring out of it as much satisfaction as you can, and then you're gone. When the reality is it's just all these things trying to sell you stuff, those guys are just going to be around for seven or eight decades, so they want you to get their stuff. And so so what does this do to a society? What does this do to a society when we don't have eternity, when, when we've lost the eternal nature of our beings. We become incredibly anxious. Our lives become all about extorting out of life everything that we can get out of it while we're here. And Western society has gone in a post-consumeristic, we're, we're, we're beyond consumerism because of this, this messaging that hits us every day, all day. What's more, as we can occupy ourselves with those uh, tasks and trying to get as much out of life as, as we can get, And then when we get halfway through life and we see the end coming, 
we still have a midlife crisis. We st- it's still there. It's still there. But when we properly use our souls, we, to do that, we must accept that the end isn't the end at all. It's just a transition. Our souls contemplate concepts in light of eternity. Or, or, or you could say it like this. Consideration is rumination with your heavenly body in mind. For perhaps the, the fact that a piece of us is actually eternal is that actually thing that you need to wrestle with, that you need to consider more on how to do that in a minute. Now, we, we must remember that this level of consideration, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It, it's not like you can just sit down and begin a dialogue with your soul. It's hard to access, right? Our souls are actually accessed through connection with one another, through conversation with one another, with God. And, and, and if you remember last week, it's best accessed through someone else helping you see the conversations that God has already started with you. Whether that be general conversations through nature or our consciences, special conversations through his scriptures, the word, or ultimate conversations through Jesus Christ revealed or a combination of those three. But the conversations uh, will eventually reach a point after you've done the hard work of connecting, conversing, listening, bringing your heart to, there's an exchange of hearts we said last week that happens in conversation. After you've done the hard work of making that happen, eventually a point will rise up to the top that needs to be considered. That will need to be unpacked. That'll need to be explored on, on the soul level, on the eternal level, which will have eternal ramifications. Now, 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 this has all been somewhat abstract up to this point. And so if you've tuned out, tuned back in, we're leaving the abstract part. We're going to look at a real time when this happened in Luke chapter 24. That's why you've opened up to Luke 24. And um, skip down to verse 13. Look for the small number 13. This is where we see it happen. This is where we see the process take place. This is famously called the road to Emmaus. It's taking place right after Jesus rose from the dead and they discovered, the the 11 disciples have discovered the empty tomb and talked about it. Now that same day, two of them, which we're gonna find out isn't isn't two of the 11 disciples, but Jesus, when he died there, he had about 100 followers um, when when he died, Uh, 12 special ones that are called the apostles. But now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. They're walking there. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them, but they were prevented from recognizing them. So there's this traveler along the road that's walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and Jesus is kind of matching their steps a little bit and comes up alongside them. Then he asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you are walking and they stopped walking and looked discouraged. So he's barged into their conversation. That's what Jesus just did, okay? He said, I'm going to be part of this conversation. The one named Cleopas, Greek name, interesting, not necessarily Jewish, but just an interesting footnote of history that uh, I looked into it. We don't know what racist was, but I think it's interesting as a Greek name. Okay, the one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? What things? Jesus is plain dumb. What things, he asked him. So they they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. 
Whereas uh, the, the first place we see that language, redeem Israel, is in the Exodus account. We, we went through at the beginning of this year, redeeming Israel, in, in their mind, what they have, save Israel from slavery, from who? To the Romans, okay? He was the one who was about to redeem Israel, to save them from slavery and, and the bondage that they were in as a vassal state of Rome. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. He said to them, this is Jesus talking, how foolish and slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. This is a stranger, okay? This is a stranger. They think he's a stranger. How foolish and slow you are. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. They came near the village where they were going. And he, that's Jesus, gave the impression that he was going farther. But they urged him, stay with us, because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So Jesus went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on, uh, on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? That very hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They are taking a seven-mile walk in the dark. They found the eleven and those with them gathered together who said, the Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. These guys can't sleep either. It's been a crazy day. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. So did you see the process that took place there? Jesus shows up alongside them on the road and begins to connect with them. Walks right up next to them and then barges into their conversation. Barges into their argument. It says they were arguing. They were disagreeing and arguing along the road. And he barged into that. He entered into their conversation and he was talking with them a while. He was playing dumb, letting them talk more and more and more until the thing rose to the top that needed to be considered. He brought this consideration to them. What did he say? He said, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Yikes. Wasn't it necessary, this is the thing to consider, for the Messiah to suffer? Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? You see, the conversation eventually brought the thing that needed to be considered on the soul level. It brought out the heart of the matter to consider Namely, that they misunderstood the role of the Messiah from the Hebrew Scriptures. They were working from the assumption that the, that, that the Messiah would present as a triumphant king, similar to maybe how Moses did. Jesus asked them to consider if the opposite was true. What if the Messiah is actually going to be a defeated, murdered servant? So this is where consideration it'll often starts. It, it, it will often start a challenge, a challenge. Jesus is using forceful words here. We don't have to be that forceful with one another, but sometimes it helps, I suppose. Call them foolish and slow, but he barged into this conversation to find out about all the things that were happening, and eventually as they turned through it, they had made an incorrect assumption with eternal consequences, and Jesus challenged their very souls with it. 
And by so doing, he presented them with the opportunity to consider. They had a choice to consider. Now, they didn't have to. That's something really important to make clear. There's no way to force someone else to to consider. You invite them to consider. But they did choose to engage it. How can we be certain? Because they continued to wrestle with the notion that they were wrong. That they were wrong. They, they, they invited this stranger to dine with them. They, they invited someone who's telling them they were wrong to dine with them, to hear them out more. And, and, then, and then we actually see the language of conviction springing up later. They say, once Jesus disappears, they say, didn't you feel our hearts burning as he talked? Feeling convicted in their souls. Dave's going to talk about that more next week. Weren't our hearts burning as he was talking with us? They experienced conviction. They experienced the next step in the process. But what did they do to let consideration run its course? Like, what did they actually do? They stepped out of the center of the universe, the center of their universe, and entertained the thought that they were wrong. They didn't worry about defending themselves or or their understanding of Scripture. They stepped out and let let, let Jesus' challenge actually occupy the center Okay, the, the challenge was left to occupy the center. So if there's a spotlight on them, they, they, they remove themselves from the spotlight and they let that challenge Jesus' assumption of actually the Messiah is supposed to be a murdered servant, not a triumphal king. They let that occupy the center and they talked about that. I think it, it's a safe assumption to say that as this, this conversation continued on, they weren't entirely convinced of it. That Jesus was trying to explain to them the, the scriptures and they were saying, they're examining this from all points of view and they're saying, what about this? What about this? What about this? You see, that's actually what the essence of consideration is. It's wanting to know if you're wrong. It's being willing to step out of the center of your universe and put something else there to examine it and say, could this actually be true? What are we missing? That was their attitude. What are we missing here? What are we missing? And in humility, they examined it. It takes humility. Consideration, in a certain sense, is wanting to know if you're wrong. Wanting to know if you're wrong, which is rare, but it's the true essence of humility. It's, it's the humility of saying, I have this eternal peace to me, I'm part of this eternal story, but I actually don't have an eternal perspective. Throw throw Ecclesiastes 3, the last slide up there again. I don't have this eternal perspective. All the way at the end there. No one can discover the work God has done from beginning to end. He's put eternity in my heart, but I I don't understand this huge story that I'm in. What am I missing? What am I missing? That's, That's consideration. What? additional perspective do I need? I'm going to consider that in light, in light of eternity. Now, we have to be aware that, that when we actually do remove ourselves from the center and, and bring something else into it, that, that the serpent wants to jump back in there as well. Dave talked about this in the first couple weeks. That's actually what we see in, in, this, in Genesis 3. When, when Eve takes the apple to eat, she was convinced to because she started considering something, the fact that, that God was withholding fruit from her, 
uh, and she was letting something else speak a lie into that. And the serpent said, God's not letting you eat this fruit because he doesn't want you to be like him. She actually didn't consider it and, and ask God for his word and, and, and what his word had to say to the fact that he wasn't letting them eat the fruit in the garden. And so we have, to, we have to be sure that when we do remove ourselves from the center and put something else in, that we're considering that subject in light of the scriptures, in light of God's word, what he's previously said about that. But it doesn't mean we don't wrestle. It doesn't mean we don't wrestle with it. There's a misconception of humility that goes like this. Humility is acquiescence. Which couldn't be further from the truth. Couldn't be further from the truth. It's not, here's a Bible verse and now the argument's over. No, absolutely. Absolutely not. Consideration and disagreement, they're not at odds. In fact, they're probably bedfellows. (laughs) Humility is just stepping out of what you know and what you're certain of to entertain the possibility of something that you do not know and something that you're uncertain of. And and when you do that and when you jump out of the middle and you genuinely ask, is this actually true? Argument just isn't permitted, it's expected. Like we, we, We hope that we're using all of our faculties to actually ask the question, is this really true? Because if we don't, we arrive at pat answers that no one's satisfied with. Sorry, this is, it's a passionate topic for me just because I studied science in college and there's a lot of pat answers when it comes down to considering a lot of just rational things in our universe with just taking a scripture verse and saying, now the argument's over. It just kills consideration. It kills it. Like I said, it's probably an extended hour or two of these disciples going back and forth with Jesus. Moses, the most humble man, the scriptures say, the most humble man who ever walked the face of the earth before Jesus again. Yeah, we got the most humble man, most wise man. Then Jesus showed up, showed him up. But the most humble man to walk the face of the earth. We, we just went through Exodus. We walked through the whole book. What did we see happen in Exodus? He argued with God a lot. <laughs> Didn't he? He argues with God. Humility and disagreements are not at odds with one another. But humility, we can, have, we can have great discussions and great considerations when we step out of the middle and start arguing. Now, there are versions of this where we don't step out of the middle, and just out of defensiveness, we're arguing. We're, and, and we wouldn't say that's consideration at all. It includes a stepping out so we can actually examine the thing that it is. But probably the best example who someone, of someone who took themselves out of the center and considered and wrestled is Jacob. You heard of this guy, Jacob? Jacob, when he was born, he was a twin. He was born grabbing onto his brother's uh, ankle. So his brother came out and he's just kind of like Toy Story when they get this toy out and Woody's there hanging on. Or, you know, like, uh, like that, Jacob. Jacob is essentially Woody. Uh, and so they gave him a name. Sir Planter is what it translates into English. None of us know what that means. It really means grasper, grasper. And he spends his whole life grasping. He cheats his uh, brother out of his uh, birthright, takes that. Then he goes on to cheat his brother out of the blessing that he would receive as a firstborn from his father, grasps that. Then he runs away from his brother when his father dies. He's like, oh shoot, my brother's gonna kill me for taking all this stuff. Runs away with his pockets empty to his uncle's house. He grasps two wives, his uncle's daughters. And then he kind of swindles this really tricky way of making sure that, that um, he enters into this deal with his, his uncle. And uh, in essence, it's this tricky swindler's way of getting all of these flocks. Takes all of, his, 
uncle's flocks, essentially. Then one day he just up and leaves his uncle with his wives, his children, his flocks. His uncle chases him down. He's like, what's going on here, dude? He's just like taking everything and running? But yeah, that's, that's the grasper right there, Jacob. Um, eventually he does get the blessing to go, and he goes, and on his way he takes a lot of his stuff and he puts it out in front of him so his brother encounters, encounters some of his stuff first so that his brother doesn't kill him. Um, but there's this very strange account on the journey back where, where he's, they're all making camp, and then he, he sends his, his, his family ahead of him across the river to continue on in the journey, sends all of his servants, he, th- th- then he sends all of his stuff and he's without all of his things. He's separated from everything that he's grasped. You could say he's kind of moved his desires out of the center. And this man shows up in the form of God and wrestles with him. He grasps onto him. And he grasps on it. And he realizes that this is the truest thing that he's ever held onto. In fact, he holds on to him all night. It's a very strange passage. It's a very strange passage. But he holds on to him all night and won't let him go. He says, I need a blessing from you. I need a blessing from you because all this other stuff that I've been grasping is empty. At the end of the day, it isn't fulfilling my desire. And he holds on to him. He wrestles with him. And he gets the blessing and he gets a new name. And, and God says, your new name is Israel, because you have wrestled with God. Israel is wrestles. El is God wrestles with God. And so a characteristic of the people of God throughout the centuries isn't acquiescence, it's wrestling. That's what it means, that that's part of our identity, is is that we're eternal beings without the eternal perspective. And so we bring things to be considered in light and wrestle with it so that we can move forward and, and hold it with conviction, confess it to the rest of the world. So that that's how we consider. So one thing I'll say is we, we shouldn't be naive about this. Taking yourself out of the center can be scary. It can be scary work. When you truly remove yourself from the center and shine a spotlight on something else that challenges how you view life, and you're genuinely asking, is this actually true? It can be very, very nerve-wracking. Very nerve-wracking. It, it unearths anxiety, fear. Um, Blaise Pascal was a brilliant 17th century uh, mathematician and physicist who had a very dramatic conversion experience to Christianity later in life. And, and after that, he took all of his energies, pretty much all of it, and, translated and, and moved, shifted them from studying math and physics to really d- d- Christian philosophy. He's like, I'm going to help people understand Christian philosophy. And, and he was compiling all this stuff to create a work of how to defend the, the Christian faith. Um, but then he died at 39 years old, and so this book was never published. But, but his, his widow took all of these thoughts and, 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 and uh, scraps that he had compiled and uh, he had, and she compiled them. She put them into a work called Pensees, which is thoughts in French. And it's one of the most widely read Christian works in Christian history now. Um, but one of his thoughts goes like this, okay? He wrote this. He wrote, men despise religion. And he's writing in the 17th century, so he's using men for shorthand for all humans. And, and by religion, he's talking about Christianity. And, and he wrote, so, so, so he wrote, people despise Christianity. They, they hate it because they fear it may be true. You see, fear is often a barrier to consideration. It can be terrifying to step aside from what you think the world is, from how you think the world works, to, to find out the world is completely different and it works completely different than I, I, I thought it does because if that were true, it would call me to live very, very differently than I am living right now. It's not asking, it, it, like, 
when you really truly consider you don't get politely asked, you, you surely don't get forced as well, but it's something in between being asked and, and forced. It's like you feel called to, to actually live by that if it, if it were to actually be true. And this is anxiety-inducing, is it not? And we can read Pascal's thought in, in light of the not yet Christian, and to be sure, this is the context in which he's actually writing it. But you can also read this in light of people who are already following Jesus because the followers of Jesus never stop considering him. I can read Pascal's thought in light of myself. What is it that, if I were to consider it would actually be true, actually intimidates me a little bit, actually makes me a little bit scared? There's something like that for all of us, and life is all about bumping into one after the other after the other, considering it faithfully in community, and moving on. And Pascal, only that, that, that quote I gave you, it's only the first part, because then he outlines how to consider. He outlines how can we move past this fear and actually consider. And he has three things that, that he says. He says this, first, help them see that it's not contrary to reason, but worthy of reverence and respect. And then second, make it attractive. Make good men and women wish it were true. And then third, show them that it is. It's this process of consideration. Help them see it's not contrary to reason. Make it attractive. Show them that it is. And isn't this exactly what Jesus did for these disciples on the road? He spent time going through the scriptures, as Luke tells us, helping them see that a suffering, Messiah, a suffering Messiah was a very, very reasonable position to take from all that God had said. Then he made them wish that it was true, telling them that their rabbi wasn't dead, but in fact, destined for glory. And then he showed them that it was true, in the most real sense, by revealing himself and disappearing. We don't have that ability, but Jesus does. But what do we do? We do focus on the same three things. We help outsiders, insiders. We see that a follower of Jesus is well-informed, thoughtful, sensible, open-minded, hopeful, helpful, generous. In that way, we present the gospel not just as reasonable intellectually, but reasonable very holistically. That's part of all of our tasks, but it's just the first step. The second piece is perhaps even more important. It's probably even more tricky we must help one another and the world witness the attractiveness of following Jesus. The attractiveness of following it. Make people wish, it true, wish it's true. He, he's, saying that, he, he's not saying to, to paint a picture of following Jesus that it's, something, that it's something that it's not in this sort of bait and switch, but he's saying put some determination and ingenuity into linking the gospel to our fundamental desires as human beings. It means we must know the hopes and aspirations that we have as humans and be able to link those to the gospel. This is thoughtful Christianity. This is being very, it's, it's creative. It's to say that the happy ending only comes in your, in your life by way of the cross and the resurrection. It's how do we make that attractive? And, and I'm so glad that Pascal calls for this. It's probably the step that's skipped the most because understandably, in these conversations, we, we, we want to talk about sin. We want to talk about the barrier that creates between humans and God. Pascal, he's not telling us that we can't uh, talk about that, but he's asking, do we take time? to talk about the astonishing and breathtaking things that are part of being a follower of Jesus? Do we give time and effort to explaining our new birth, our new name, our new identity? 
Adoption into his family? Do we give time to that? Experience of God's love and fellowship? The slow but radical change that comes for all disciples, the power and and meaning in the face and in light of suffering in the world, in our lives. A mission of mercy and and justice that that we're tasked with. A love for one another that'll go on forever. I mean, being a Christian is the, the most incredible thing ever. It's so attractive. Do we know how to talk about these things with one another and with the world in a way that we can disarm our fears and anxieties and say, you know what, I might give that a chance. Because they might respond with, well, if following Jesus can produce that, then yes, I'm willing to give it a try. And then finally, we, we show that it's true. Once people have concluded that it's reasonable, that it's attractive, then they, they can be open to the evidences in your life and in the world. That, that Jesus fills the holes in your heart and answers your biggest question. That Christianities ha- actually have the, the resources to explain human behavior better than, than any other option out, for, out there and powerfully addresses all that ail us. We'd love to start there. We often start there. That's not enough to get people over the fear. We have to invite them into a conversation, a consideration that, that shows Christianity, and we do this with one another. This is very reasonable. This is very attractive, and it works, and it works. And so the, the question is, where do you start? Where do you start? Well, what part of God are you struggling to trust? That's, that's the question. What part of God are you struggling to trust? Not, not just intellectually assent to, you know, sometimes we can think of faith as just a list of things that we believe. Um, Dave talked about the creeds in week one. Um, and the creeds, we can read through it and say, I believe this, I believe this, sure, sure, sure. But intellectually we can, but are we existentially leaning on those and trusting them? What, what part of God are you struggling to lean on and trust? Is it his love? Like, does he actually love you? Is it his provision? Will God actually provide for me? his goodness? Does he actually have a good plan for my life, or does he just want to use me as some peon? Is it that he's there at all? What is it? Connect with people. Build relationships so that you can have conversations where these considerations can bubble up. You can consider them in light of eternity and in light of God's word. Why is considering so important? Why? Why is it so important? Uh, I think we've talked about it the whole time, but I just want to make it really, really clear for the explorers among us. Um, It's the precondition to knowing God. Because here's the thing, this kind of considering that takes place in our souls, it never goes away. Consideration is an eternal task. It's always necessary when the finite are in the presence of the infinite. It's the consideration that Adam and Eve's souls did as they they walked in the Garden of Eden with this infinite being and they discovered more and more and more about him on a daily basis. When the finite's in the presence of the infinite, it means there's always something else to know about God. Each day was a day of exploration. And then God builds us an incredibly huge world and universe for us to explore as well. We can explore that in light of who he is. And the the Christian hope is that we recover that relationship. And, And the gospel of Jesus ultimately tells us that the infinite comes to dwell with us once again within creation, which will lead to continued exploration of his creation and continued exploration of his very being forever. 
one of pure joy and pure thrill. Heaven isn't a, a place that we go to, that we sit into, but heaven is something that comes down to earth and we continue to explore who God is and all that his creation is. And we continue on that path forever. It's a thrill, it's a joy. We discover new things about him forever. And so consideration isn't just something to do now. It's our fundamental eternal activity that, we'll, that we're gonna embark on forever. The joy is through the kingdom of Jesus. It's drawn near and given us the opportunity to do it even now. And it's one that leads to similar joy and similar thrill. It's scary sometimes. Taking yourself out of the center, that's no walk in the park, but it's a thrill and it's a joy. Would you pray with me?